Welcome to the Successful Farming Podcast. I'm Jody Henke. This podcast is brought to you by Grasshopper. With grasshopper mowers, nothing gets in the way of mow day. Jeff Sawicki farms on the coast of South Carolina, following nature as his guide. Everything on his place, called Vital Mission Farm, is a balance of plants, livestock, and animals to make a low-impact, nutrient-recycling, and diverse community. He doesn't have a lot of land, and he doesn't own a tractor, but it works. Tell me the history of your farm. How'd you get it started? Yeah, so we started, I think it's my sixth season farming, so started in early 2017. And basically, I don't have any farming background to speak of. Just started, you know, learning some stuff. And I was working a corporate job and we bought some land in the country, bought about nine acres and decided I want to start raising some, you know, growing some vegetables. We started a little garden, bought 25 chickens and I built a little chicken tractor, a little, you know, covered house that I could move around in the backyard and it would keep them safe. And I raised them until they were big enough to harvest. We harvested those chickens and I gave some to friends and family and people just told me that it was the best chicken they ever had. And you could really taste the difference because they're eating a lot of grasses and bugs and living the natural life. They're getting fresh air and sunshine. They're much healthier. And you could taste the difference in the meat, you know, similar to grass fed beef kind of has a richer flavor. It's more healthier for you. These are kind of like grass fed chicken in a way. And so we had those chickens and they, they tasted fantastic. They're healthy. They're clean. We didn't have to use any antibiotics and that kind of stuff. And I said, hey, maybe there's something to this. It wasn't long after that I started growing and raising more birds. And then I got into raising ducks. And, you know, maybe six months later, I had like 300 ducks in the backyard. Life's like, what happened? <laughs> you know, and this- How big is your backyard? Did you have enough room? I mean, describe the area that you're living in. So the property we have is about nine acres, but I was only farming initially on about two acres because most of it was wooded and not available to farm on. So we cleared about a two acre section uh, pasture. It was a lot of pine forest that we logged the trees out and turned it into pasture. And then we quickly outgrew that and leased some property across the street from a gentleman has another five to seven acres, roughly. In all, we're farming on about seven or eight acres. And we found a way to make it work on a small scale. You also have developed your farm into kind of a silvopasture type of environment. Can you explain what that is and what's all involved with it and what made you decide to do that? Yeah, so the pasture-raised poultry was kind of the initial impetus, I guess, the first thing that we started with on the farm. And so I started raising these birds. And because we had logged that section, which is about two acres of pine forest, We took out all those pine trees, which didn't really provide any habitat for wildlife or any much value other than, you know, two by fours. We took those pine trees out and then we were seeding out our pastures and trying to turn it into new pasture for our poultry. But we left the stumps behind or the loggers left the stumps behind. So it was very uneven ground, very rough, kind of rough ground initially. So using a model such as a chicken tractor that can move across the ground wasn't going to work in our situation. It was too many logs on the ground, too many holes, stumps, things of that nature. So what I did is we bought these electric netting. We use that to keep the birds safe. It's about a four foot high netting that we can set up in a perimeter and it's electrified from a solar charge and that keeps the predators out. So our foxes and raccoons and that sort of thing don't eat our birds. And because of that, I can set up around those stumps and around those obstacles. And then I realized that we can actually do this in wooded areas. And so we have some other areas of the farm that have standing trees that are more wooded and we can set this net up and carve out a section to put our poultry in. So that gives us a lot of opportunity. And I started thinking about it 
hey, maybe I can plant some trees out in this pasture. And so we have now what's called a silver pasture system, which is essentially trees incorporated with livestock in the same land space. And so we have planted out our pastures with different fruit and nut trees. We can set the netting around those trees and those trees are widely spaced enough that enough sunlight still hits the soil, allowing our grasses and small grains to grow. So I can grow small grains and forages for our poultry, grasses and, and grains. I'm growing poultry and I'm also growing tree crops on the same land space. So basically three different products off the same land space. What kind of grains are you growing for them? We have experimented with just putting out different seed. You know, one of the big costs of raising poultry is our feed cost. And we have to buy in a lot of feed that's mostly comprised of different minerals and corn and soy. And I thought to myself, well, what can we do to try to minimize our inputs? We want to be a regenerative farm and try to minimize our inputs and our expenses as much as possible. And I thought, well, maybe we can grow our own feed. And so we started seeding out our pastures with different species, such as clover. Uh, We've planted wheat and oats in the wintertime. We'll also plant things like millet and these small grains. It just makes sense. Let's let these grains go to seed and just move the animals to the food rather than buying the food and shipping across the country to our farm. And we can just let the animals harvest it right off the stock. And it made perfect sense. And so we're able to reduce our feed bill and to reduce our carbon footprint that way, which is fantastic. It does take a little bit of playing around with it and try to get the timing right, you know, get the birds in there at the right time when the grains are going to seed. So we're still trying to figure out that perfect timing, that perfect amount of space for the birds. But it's something that we're going to continue to work with this year. You mentioned predators before. What kind of predators did you have and how big of a problem were they? Predators have been probably our biggest challenge on the farm. Because we're using the netting system, it works pretty well to keep a lot of the four-legged predators out. But the birds are exposed to any aerial predators, so raptors. You know, we're having a lot of hawks and eagles. And at nighttime, we have owls that will come. So one thing that we've done to help minimize our predator pressure is we've added geese. And we found that the geese, it's interesting, you have to either use one goose or a lot of geese. If you use two or three geese, it doesn't work because then they kind of just pair up together and do their own thing, leave the birds be the sacrificial lamb, so to speak. So if you have one goose and they kind of look at all the young birds as their own, they, they protect them, they'll squawk and flap their wings and make a bunch of racket and they'll chase hawks out of there and keep them out during the daytime. Uh, we still do lose some poultry to birds at night. So we'll lose them to owls. Occasionally we'll get a fox that'll dig under the fence or jump it or something like that. Ideally, we would have a dog, a livestock guardian dog to keep our poultry safe. But I haven't haven't found one yet just because we have a lot of neighbors and that sort of thing. But the geese have really helped our predator losses dramatically. I've been chased by a goose before. I understand how vicious they can be. (laughs) So with your poultry, you also incubate your own eggs. How does that work? So we keep a laying flock and I I was raising chickens in the beginning and then I started raising ducks. I saw an opportunity there. There wasn't really any farmers doing pasture raised ducks. And where we are in the, in the Southeast, close to the coast here in Charleston, South Carolina, we get a lot of rain and it's very low land. uh, It's very flat. And so ducks are happy, you know, when it rains and it's soggy out in the field, you know, the wetter, the better for them. So the ducks work really well. Plus when we move them every day, they can kind of herd in one direction. So we've actually moved four or 500 birds at a time down the road, just steering the lead duck in the right direction, have 500 birds following behind it. And it's quite comical when they're walking down the street and we're holding up traffic, but we do hatch all of our own birds on farm. So we have a laying flock of about 200 birds with males and females. And so we'll get the fertile eggs and we'll hatch all the farm birds. And what that does is a couple of things, not only reducing our cost by not having to 
purchase those chicks, but they're healthier when we can hatch them on farm and then put them directly into the brooder and keep them warm and happy. And then we can also select for certain traits that we might want in the adult birds. So whether it's, you know, growth ability or temperament. In fact, I would say that for someone that's looking to start a pasture poultry operation is starting with the proper breed, you know, whether you want to do it for, for meat or for eggs, there's a lot of birds out there and summer market is dual purpose. But if you're going to do meat birds, for example, you need to focus on that. If you're going to do eggs, you need to focus on that because farming is hard enough as it is. There's so many variables out there. And so you really need to kind of give yourself the best advantage. In fact, I'll put together a little um, template that just has, you know, some recommendations for the top breeds, both ducks and chickens, for people that are interested in getting into this for meat and for eggs. Jeff is a DIY type of guy, but even he got caught up in buying the best and shiniest infrastructure, throwing him into debt. When we come back, Jeff tells us what happened. Stay tuned. It doesn't matter whether you're on the backfield or the front yard. On Mo Day, perfection is a game of inches. It's a battle of fence line and fierce terrain. Out there, on that grasshopper mower, you don't let anything stop your stripes. Nothing stands in the way of a job well done. For more on Mo Day and Grasshopper Mowers, visit grasshoppermower.com. You're kind of a DIY type of guy too. And you've built hoop houses, solar powered systems and tinkering around with other things on your farm. Can you give me examples of some of that stuff? Yeah, so as a regenerative farm, you know, some of the things that we want to do is we want to minimize our inputs. And part of that comes with trying to build a lot of our own infrastructure and to be successful and to be profitable. The way I approach the farm is I didn't want to spend a ton of money on a whole bunch of infrastructure and all these parts that you can buy. And, and a lot of times what I've found is for someone that wants to do pasture poultry, for example, if you want to raise you know a handful of chickens in your backyard, you can find feeders and waters and these sorts of things at a big box store and you can do that easily. But if you want to scale that up to a few hundred or a few thousand birds and make it a small commercial farm, there's really not a lot of infrastructure out there. There is some stuff that's made for the big poultry farmers are doing millions of birds a year. You know, and if you want to invest a half a million dollars, that's your choice. I didn't have the means to do that. So I started building a lot of different infrastructure to try to save money and make these designs that were really custom fitted for our farm and our size and our situation. One example would be our feed. We buy feed in bulk and we need a place to store that. And so I could buy a feed silo, which might be five to $10,000 to store, you know, three to 10 tons of feed at a time. Or what I did was I found an IBC tank, which is an international bulk container. And so they're coming up these 300 gallon plastic tanks. And I cut a small door at the bottom. And so the feed can go in the tank, it's stored in there. We just lift the trap door open at the bottom and we can store about a ton of feed in that. You know, I can make one of these for about 75 bucks. I now have seven of them. And so as I scale up, I can store more and more feed and I can purchase in larger quantities. And I think that's key is to try to minimize your expenses in the beginning, you know, when you're farming to try and stay out of debt, I think is very key. But you have gone into debt. What happened? Yeah. (laughs) So in the beginning, I was trying lots of different things, you know, trying to throw everything at the wall and see what would stick. I was buying, you know, the shiniest tools and I was trying poultry, we raised pigs. I was raising multiple types of poultry. We did a garden. We did several dozen pigs and tried to do that. And that was kind of fiasco and, you know, just trying so many different things and and changing designs. And 
basically I was just getting distracted and wasting a lot of time and a lot of money trying to throw a lot of stuff on the wall to see what would stick. Long story short, we ended up, I ended up spending you know, close to $75,000, $80,000 on a credit card, which was a bad, oh boy. bad choice. Yeah. And so it was a really tough time. Fortunately, I was still working off the farm to support the farm and keep going. But that debt is really, really a tough hurdle to try to overcome. And so part of what I've been trying to do is put together a program that people can follow and say, hey, here's the infrastructure you need. You don't have to spend $75,000 like I did. You need to have a plan. You need to follow a certain plan so you're not getting distracted and buying certain things. And you need to make sure you don't go into debt. And so that's part of the reason why we build our own infrastructure and we follow a strict schedule in order to you know, not get out of hand. <laughs> Yeah. And you've sold your ducks to restaurants and so forth. And then COVID hit. What did you have to do to pivot to make up for that? Most of our pasture poultry, as you mentioned, we were selling to restaurants. We're doing about 98% wholesale. We really tapped into the wholesale restaurant market and learned how to market to chefs. And that was very beneficial. When COVID happened and all the restaurants shut down, I knew that we needed to make a change and we had to pivot. And so we started pivoting to direct consumer. So we started attending one of the local farmer's markets. We quickly grew and started attending three different farmer's markets within a three-hour drive of the farm. And <laughs> since we're raising ducks, I learned that not a lot of people eat a lot of duck. You know, <laughs> there are some people out there that love it, but they might have it on occasion or for, you know, uh, Valentine's Day or something like that, for example. But they're not eating it every other night like chicken. So I was trying to think of how can we make this work? How can we sell this direct to consumer? And so one of the things we did was we started adding value to our products. So instead of just selling whole birds or leg quarters and breast, we were now adding value to it. So we would take like, if we part out a duck and we have the carcass that's left with the bones, we could make a bone broth out of that. And so we're utilizing all the parts. We'd sell the feet and bones as a bone broth. Uh, we can make different flavored sausages and charcuterie and prepared products such as duck confit. We had a chef that we're partnering with and he was making duck confit and we sell that at the market. And so we're able to expand our offerings. But the other benefit of that is we were able to really increase our profit margin. So instead of selling a bird wholesale and after expenses, we'd have you know $10 left as our profit from selling one bird to a restaurant. Now we could add value to that same bird and we can increase our, our profit margin by seven times and you take home $70 for that same bird. And what that means is that now we can raise fewer birds on smaller acreage. And so we're only farming on about seven acres in this past year. We grossed close to $200,000 on those seven acres. Wow. So approximately 25000 per acre, and we don't even own a tractor. So there's ways to do this and be profitable and successful on small acreage. How does he do it? When we come back, Jeff tells us how he helps others get started in profitable regenerative farming. Stay tuned. It doesn't matter whether you're on the backfield or the front yard. On Mo Day, perfection is a game of inches. It's a battle of fence line and fierce terrain. Out there, on that grasshopper mower, you don't let anything stop your stripes. Nothing stands in the way of a job well done. For more on Mo Day and Grasshopper Mowers, visit grasshoppermower.com. I'm going to talk about, you know, some of the educational things that you're doing. You're offering some classes and very freely giving your advice to people and how they can do a lot of the same things that you do. So for someone interested in starting a regenerative farm, 
What would you say are the key aspects? You know, there's a lot of different approaches to farming. And I think small regenerative farms are really the future because you're you're in control of your destiny more. You can minimize your expenses and you're not at the whim of commodity pricing, right? And it doesn't just have to be poultry. There's lots of different options. But in terms of regenerative farm, the keys for me, I saw three important things, three important steps if we wanted to be a regenerative farm. The first was to minimize our inputs. And so the way we've done that, I've alluded to a little bit how we grow some of our own feed, hatching our own birds. We also use solar power in our brooder for heating for our birds. And so we're trying to minimize our inputs and minimize our expenses as much as possible. The second thing we want to do is we want to have no waste. And so we want to recycle things. We use all the manure as we move the birds across our fields. All that manure is getting distributed across the field and it is becoming an asset rather than a liability. So that manure is full of nitrogen. It's adding fertility to our soil. In just three years, we've increased the organic matter in our soil by 3%, which is pretty dramatic. For most farmers know that organic matter is really a great measure of how well your soil can hold water and hold carbon and how productive it's going to be. The other benefit of that is all that organic matter comes from carbon from the air. So we're sequestering carbon, we're helping the environment, we're increasing our soil fertility, and we're recycling things such as the manure. Also, if we have like a dead bird or if we have cracked eggs that we can't use, things of this nature, we'll put these in a bin. And it might sound a little gross, but we put them in a bin and we keep them in the pen with our birds. And there's a fly called the black soldier fly, which will feed on you know food waste and dead animals and that sort of thing. And so these maggots will hatch in this bin. They grow very large and they're about 40% protein, 50% fat. They're very nutritious. And they'll actually crawl out of that bin once they're about to pupate. And then the birds can, can just eat them right there. And so we're recycling any waste product that we might have had. And then the third thing that I believe is key to a regenerative farm is integrating and using diversity. Like I said, in our silver pasture example, our birds are integrated in with our pasture and these trees. So the birds act as our fertilizer program, our lawnmowers, and our pest control for the trees. The trees provide shade. They provide a windbreak. They provide protection from aerial predators. They keep our soil cool and shaded in the summertime. There's a long-term carbon storage in those trees. And then the roots of the trees also prevent flooding. Someone's seen a pasture when we've had a really heavy rain and it's just soggy and you get your tractor stuck. Those trees will help soak up that excess water. And so the fields aren't as muddy and wet. And they also help to moderate the temperature. So when we utilize livestock and trees and grains and things together, you can really get a really nice synergy. And that's what's important to us is to grow food that's healthy for the animals, healthy for the consumer, and also is good for the environment. And that was kind of what laid the foundation of our farm. How many years have you been doing this now? This will be our sixth season. Wow. You've come a long way in a short period of time. Takes some people, you know, generations to do what you've already done in half a dozen years. So all those synergies kind of go along with profitability too, especially for small farmers. What advice do you have for them to increase their profitability? First of all, you know, don't blow a bunch of money on big expensive equipment. We don't own a tractor. Um, the few times that I've needed a tractor, I've used one or just rented one from somebody or hired somebody to do what we needed to do. You can minimize your expenses by building your own infrastructure that you need. You can lease land. So we were only farming about two and a half to three acres. And then we had a neighbor who has about seven acres that I had approached because he wasn't doing anything with his land. It was just lying fallow and said, hey, could I bring some birds out here? I'll keep your grass cut for you. You know, they'll kind of be your lawnmowers and that's fertility to it. You won't have to mow. And he said, sure. 
And I said, what do you want? You know, I'll, I'll lease it. I'll pay you whatever you want. He said, nothing. He said, I'm just happy to see it go to use. So we lease seven acres, basically free of charge, which is pretty incredible. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to do that. I think there's a lot of land that isn't being used. So I'd say in the beginning, you know, don't even worry about buying land. You can lease land. You can use land that's not being used and you need to have a plan. So the other thing is I didn't have a plan. I was distracted. I was, you know, watching YouTube videos and reading all kinds of books I could find and trying the next best thing. And I was really just wasting a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of energy. And so I think you really need to be focused in on on what you're doing and have a plan for that. And then you also need to figure out your marketing strategy. You know, at the end of the day, you can have the most regenerative farm, but you can have all these great things going on. But if you can't market it and you can't sell it for a profit, then it's there's no point. You're not going to be farming for very long. And so that was key for us. Our marketing strategy was to go off of those wholesale markets. So with restaurants, we still do a, a fair amount of wholesale and also the direct consumer, you know, utilizing those value added products and increasing our profitability that way. So is it just you working on your farm or do you have other help? Yeah. In the beginning, it was just me. Now I have someone that comes and helps a few days a week on the farm and then I'll have some help with the markets as well. But I'm the primary person on the farm here. What future plans do you have? Any expansion or adding anything to the livestock realm? In the future, I don't think we'll do any more livestock species per se, but we're going to plant out more fruit trees and try to fill out our pastures that way with more fruit and nut species. And then this year, we really want to try to push the envelope as far as agriculture is concerned and see what's possible. Doing things like experimenting with reducing our feed bill, trying different alternative sources of feed, planting out more grains and also innovating and and also educating. And so I'm trying to put a little more focus this year also on sharing some of the things I've learned and helping other people not only be profitable, but learn how to scale up and start a a small farm and be successful doing it. And where can people find that information if they want to learn from you? I'm on Instagram and YouTube, Farmer Jeff Sawicki on both of those channels. Excellent. Jeff, I think that's all the questions I have for you. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention that listeners should know? I appreciate you bringing me on. And, you know, I would say for folks that are already farming and let's say you have a tractor and you're growing corn and soybeans and they're thinking, oh, I'm I'm past this. You can start now. You know, you could raise some livestock. You could raise some poultry, you know, cut off a few acres that you have. In fact, I would say if you have a tractor and you're growing corn and soybeans, you've got an advantage because here you can grow all your own feed. And that's one of the biggest expenses is our feed cost. And you can really hit the ground running. So I'd say anybody can do this. It's simple. And if you're interested in learning more, feel free to reach out to me. Thanks to Jeff Sawicki for being my guest today, to Grasshopper for sponsoring the podcast, and thank you for listening. For Successful Farming, I'm Jody Henke.